or even anger when you see perhaps a vulnerable child or a helpless elderly individual abused or hurt. You know these experiences. You've seen them. You've witnessed some form of injustice in your life. It's normative to have experienced it in this fallen world. And, and you know those feelings that well up in you. The, the sort of righteous anger that doesn't seem to subside when the innocent are hurt or abused. Or perhaps when you yourself have been a victim of injustice. Someone harmed you. Not because of anything particularly you did, but because of their own evil intent. You have felt the pain. You have wrestled with and struggled long in the night with the horror of evil that has been done to you. Perhaps even this morning, you yourself are enduring some form of injustice. Whether it be through work, or in your community, your neighborhood, perhaps even in your own family. You know, so often as Christians, we, we get angry, we get mad, and we, we simply move on. But is there a place in the Christian life for you and I to be angry? To call down fire from heaven and ask that God would deal with wickedness. What are we to do when we have enemies? When we are tempted to hatred or even revenge? What are we to do when we find ourselves in a helpless place, overwhelmed by wickedness, Friend, these are the emotions that are found in Psalm 58. And again, these psalms that we've picked over this month of July have been ones that you've perhaps skipped over, read quickly. You maybe don't often come back to them. You maybe even don't know what to do with them. Psalm 58 has language of stillborn babies and God bathing Himself in the blood of the wicked. They seem harsh. They seem almost foreign. But there is something about these words that you'll find in Psalm 58 that, are, that is very earthly. Very normative to your own experience. In, in the rawness of these, in the carnage that you see come, this is the world in which we find ourselves. Before we read the text, I want to give you a sense of the context of where this psalm fits within the Psalter. Now often in, in the psalms as you read, you'll identify at the beginning of the psalm a superscript that's all in capital letters. And this is original. This isn't a, you know, something that translators have added. This is original to the author, to the scribes who compiled the psalms. Oftentimes, these give us a sense of the context into which these happened. Like Psalm 51, when we considered David's confession there. It was in light of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of 
Uriah the Hittite. This particular psalm identifies it as a corporate song used in the congregational worship in Israel. It's ascribed to King David, the greatest king of Israel, and the author, as we know, of countless psalms. Psalm 51 falls within a collection of individual and communal laments. And we've considered this word a number of weeks ago, and we've considered over these three weeks, laments. To lament is to express one's sorrow over their circumstances. To complain, if you will, in a righteous way. While this is often classified as a lament, it also takes the nature of an imprecatory psalm. And you say, wow, that's a wonderful word that I will forget. That's okay. But to have an imprecatory prayer or song means to literally call down from heaven. It is, if you will, that red phone that's picked up and you you call the emergency hotline and you say, God, I'm at the end of my road. It's, it's, if you do not intervene, and, and by the way, how I want you to intervene is for you to literally come down and destroy the wicked around me. It is, if you will, enough is enough. And these are, of course, often the cries we find in the New Testament through the Greek word Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? So historically, Christians have prayed an imprecatory prayer, come, Lord Jesus. Right? When we say that often, come, Lord Jesus. What do we mean by that, come, Lord Jesus? We mean come and judge this wicked world, Jesus Come and take us home, and and once we get safely tucked in bed, we want you to deal with this world finally and fully. We We are done. In this song, the community laments unjust, wicked rulers. The community of God's people finds comfort and hopefulness in the midst of their deplorable situation. These unjust rulers are causing tremendous pain and suffering and affliction among God's people. But they do not lose hope, but rather, as you'll see, trust themselves to God's perfect timing, to His perfect vindication that He will bring about in His perfect way. One author summarizes this particular psalm. The psalm moves from addressing a group of people who decree and judge to describing them It then prays for their defeat and anticipates a happy consequence when God finally answers that prayer. Friend, let's consider Psalm 58 this morning. It's found on page 477 in the Pew Bibles. Let me just encourage you to open your Bible. Leave it open. We'll notate a number of things as we go throughout this wonderful song, a song of anger. Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right? You gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. 
Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrow, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. What's the point of Psalm 58? I've summarized it in just a few words. All wrongs must be righted. All wrongs must be righted. The psalmist here has one clear point. David, in crafting this song to be sung by the congregation, had one main idea, and that is that God will eternally judge all wrongs. That God will make all things right. And so, David is teaching us, and my hope is to teach us as a congregation, to trust God's just judgment. To trust that God will deal with every wrong that has ever been done, ever in the history of humanity. God will deal with that. And if this is true, that God will eternally deal With all wrong, we can be released from the need to judge now. We sang earlier about freedom. And that was intentional. You see, the gospel frees us as a people. When we rightly come to understand God's justice and His eternal judgment, it frees us from being judges ourselves. We can leave it, leave judgment to our good God and trust that it's in His hands and that His judgments are always right. It's wonderful to know this morning that in the midst of rampant injustice, our only hope is in the final judgment where God will vindicate the godly and pour out vengeance on the wicked. This is our hope. That God will vindicate the righteous and He will pour out His vengeance upon the wicked. So, as we think about this theme of injustice, how do we respond when we face injustice. This is what David is doing. He's teaching how you and I respond to injustice. And he has three main ideas, three, three ways that we respond. Number one, call out injustice. In verses 1 through 5, David calls out injustice. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't seek to cover it up. But he points his finger at these religious leaders, and he says to them, you are unjust. You are wicked. You are evil. He calls evil, evil. 
and good, good. Secondly, number two, we see in verses six through nine that we are to cry out to God for justice. That the first instinct of the believer isn't to seek our own justice, which is often confused and perverted by sin, but rather to seek God's justice, which is always good and right. And then lastly, number three, we'll consider in response to injustice, that we are to celebrate God's future judgment. You think, celebrate? Yeah, friend, He's calling you to celebrate that one day God will make it all right. Well, let's consider first in verses 1 through 5 that we are to call out injustice. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist challenges the wicked. Notice what David writes. He says, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Now again, David isn't thinking here in theological terms. the, The word here isn't Elohim, which is often a reference to a god, a deity. But he's referring here to Someone who has authority. Someone that is either in religious or civil authority. And if you look, your Bible has a footnote um, seeking to help you understand that this is a Hebrew idiom that's seeking to revocalize this particular idea. What simply means this is that David is calling out leaders who are wicked. He asked two rhetorical questions. Do you indeed decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? David envisions someone here that has authority to assess someone else's life. Someone who is in a particular place to make judgment or decisions for someone else. And through these two rhetorical questions, David makes emphatically clear that no, you are wicked, you are perverse, you can only judge that which is wrong. Which is what he concludes in verse 2. No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. The injustice that was being faced by these particular individuals in this context, though we don't know historically what it exactly ties to in some circumstance, David makes clear there in verse 2 that inwardly their hearts, that is the the center of the decision-making process for these leaders, was to, notice the verbs, devise wrongs and deal out violence. You see him? Friend, isn't that true from your own experience? That wicked individuals come up with new ways to be wicked? Friend, that's what it means to be in sin, is to be inventors of evil. That is the definition of wickedness. In other words, if you were just to sort of consider the landscape of your own life over the last 40, 50, 60 plus years, or shorter or longer, No doubt you've seen where evil has sought to invent new ways to be evil. Devising wrongs and handing out violence. 
David pictures one who has authority, but who is so wicked and perverse. He challenges their wickedness. And then in verses 3 and 5, lays the charges against them. Now, you sense a, a sense of irony here, right? These individuals are judges, uh, so if you set this in a courtroom, you have David bringing the indictment against the bench itself, against those who are sitting in judgment on others, those that were given the particular responsibility to lead others and make decisions for them, rather than leading them to good, what does he do? They lead them to to evil and wickedness. And so he levels charges in verses 3 through 5. Notice these charges. He begins with the word, the wicked, and then goes on to describe them. Again, he's not left behind the rulers, but rather identifies them as wicked. And notice first, he says they are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Now, the particular syntax of this in your ESV is is kind of confusing, as is most of the middle of this psalm. So we'll try to straighten it out for you a bit here. Here's the point. David says, from the very moment they are born, they speak lies. From the moment of birth, no one has to teach them how to lie. No one, they didn't take any courses online. But rather, they are so wicked, so perverse, that the moment they come out of the womb, they begin lying. They begin cursing God's goodness and grace. They're estranged, he says. This is none other than the evangelical doctrine of depravity. That we are depraved. That that as humans, we are born in iniquity, in sin. As David says, doesn't he, in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Right? We understand that the Bible teaches that we are from the moment of conception in rebellion against God and in need of a Savior. Well, he goes on in verses 4 and 5 using the illustration of snakes. Some of you might be a little uneasy in this moment. I know I am as I think about it. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Again, the idea here is of a snake that doesn't listen to its charmer, right? So you're fiddling around with poisonous snakes. Why you would do that, I don't know. Um, But you're fiddling around with them and you're, you're trying to charm them, but the snake doesn't listen to you, so what does it do? But it bites you, right? And of course, you all Floridians uh, hear these stories all the time about these crazed individuals who put pythons in their house and think all is going to go well. Right? Uh, snakes do not have the particular region of their brain that has empathy or sympathy with you. They will not, no never, be your friend, but will rather try to kill you while you sleep at night. But sure, go ahead, invite it into your home and everything will go well. Of course it was. This is what those religious leaders were. 
They were like snakes that the people thought, oh, everything will be fine. They, they won't hurt us. We've got it under control. But rather, no, they didn't have it under control. They were rather seeking to do harm at any turn. Injustice does abound, doesn't it? It seems as if if we have our uh, sort of eyes open, injustice is all around us. It seems to be just sort of normative to our own experience, isn't it? And particularly the experience of the, go- the godly. Just consider in your Bible, Abraham and the injustice he faced at the hands of the wicked kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, having to rescue his nephew Lot because of these wicked kings. Or Jacob and the injustice he faced at his trickster uncle Laban, tricking him several times in order to get him to marry his oldest daughter. Or consider, of course, Joseph. And the injustice at the hand of his brothers. And the injustice at the hand of Potiphar. And particularly Potiphar's wife. The injustice that Joseph faced at the hand of the cupbearer. Consider even the injustice that Moses faced. As the people of God rebelled against him. Or David's own injustice that he faced not only at the hand of Saul, but at his own son Absalom. As his own flesh and blood rebels against him and seeks his crown. Or even in your New Testament, consider Paul and the injustice faced by the Jews. And the often lashes that he took because he was seeking to share the name of Christ. Or the Roman injustice that he faced in his false imprisonment. All because he was proclaiming Christ and him crucified. And of course as Christians... The greatest injustice this world has ever known is the death of Jesus. A man who was innocent, who had done no wrong, who had did nothing to deserve death on a cross. He died not because he deserved it, not because there was something that he had done in rebellion against God. Rather, he willingly died the death that sinners deserve. See, one of the great riddles of the Bible is the way that God makes all things right is by killing His own Son. By punishing sinners through the atoning death of Christ, God's wrath is satisfied and sinners are set free. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you would be encouraged by confessing the reality of injustice. By calling injustice what it is. By praying that you might have eyes to see injustice that abounds in our fallen world. We must never turn a blind eye as so sadly our own church has done, our own denomination has done. Injustice that abounded around us, and we said no, no. But by God's grace, He led us into the light where we could clearly identify wrong. When a wicked leader or a government oppresses us or others, we must be a voice that speaks clearly on these matters. Consider even the faithful brothers and sisters who fought injustice during the civil rights movement. Some of you participating 
or even those faithful brothers and sisters who more recently lobbied Congress for decades to end the unjust murder of innocent unborn children in America. We should never as Christians be complicit in injustice. As Calvin writes, although the world be set against the people of God, they need not fear so long as they are supported by a sense of their integrity to challenge kings and their counselors and the promiscuous mob of the people. Should the whole refuse to hear us, we must leave, by example of David, to rest satisfied with the testimony of a good conscience and with appeal to the tribunal of God. Friend, in this is an explicit warning to those who are in authority. Whether it's an authority in the home, an authority in the church, an authority in the community, as leaders, Friend, those who abuse their authority as moms and dads, as pastors and deacons, as mayors and community leaders, friend, God will judge leaders. God will judge injustice. This is a clarion call, I believe, to those among us who desire to be in government. Not to complain about government but to be a part of being a righteous leader when it seems that our government is filled with unrighteous leaders. So often we want to complain rather than participate in change. May we desire, I believe, to enter the public square in order to rule justly and to work to make wrongs right. So so think about that the next time you see an ordinance passed or some go on in our own county, our own state, our own country. And friend, rather than complain, rather than to be discouraged, participate in the process to make wrongs right. Secondly, we see here, as we face injustice in verses 6 through 9, That David leads the congregation from crying out or calling out injustice to crying out to God. He does this because he understands that this world is ruled by wickedness. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness that rule over this world. So this is post-cross that Paul is saying this. So you want to be careful in your theology of the cross that you do not confuse the fact that the enemy still has sway in this world. So your little squabbles at home and with co-workers, and at, friend, we need to see a cosmic warfare going on that our eyes cannot see this morning. And in verse 6, the apostle, or excuse me, in verse 6, David cries out, pray for the end of their powerful positions. O God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. This is imagery, poetry of power. The teeth that they were using to devour those around them, to literally consume them. David cries out that you would smash them in such a way that their powerful positions would cease. Not only that, he prays for the dissolution of their deceitful practices in verses 7 through 9. And a number of similes, notice them, 
in beautiful Hebrew poetry expressed meagerly through our English language. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Right? Water runs away. It runs off the field. It runs down the river. And it goes far, far away. It leaves us, right? Heavy rain and then it's gone. And he aims his arrow, let them be blunted. In other words, he desires for affliction upon those who afflict. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. This again is using some understanding. Of course, snails don't literally dissolve into slime, but, but it is a sort of metaphor. Or like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. In other words, I wish they were never born in order to afflict their wickedness upon others. And then lastly there in verse 9, a, a sort of a strange idea here. Sooner than, than your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The picture here in verse 9 is that of a fire. They're, they're, they're seeking to cook something in the pot, right? You know the old adage, uh, watching water and trying to get it to boil. It takes forever. Right? You're just standing there waiting and waiting and waiting. No, 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 the psalmist is saying, we, we don't want no waiting. We want it done swiftly, instantly. I want your justice, O oh God, instantly to come and to deal with this wickedness. Let it be no more. Let it be dissolved. Let it, let it end. Let, it, let, let, let this be the end of all of this, O oh Lord. In the midst of unexpected and unmerited injustice, we ultimately cry out for God's swift deliverance. As the old... Puritan divine W.S. Plummer once wrote, if our cause is just, let us confide in God even in the darkest hour. Friend, I know your experience has probably been like this of the psalm, that it was in your darkest hour, night, not in the brightest day, that you had the greatest sense of God's presence. And this is, what the, this is what David felt in the midst of the darkness that abounded around him, shone the light of God's presence. Even in the context of the local church here, we, we may be faced with unjust leaders, the unjust decisions that they made, religious leaders who abused their positions and power. Brothers and sisters, we must guard against that through prayer. In the injustice that we face individually, we ought to cry out that God would expose their power and that it would come to its end. One thing is for sure implied in what David is writing here in verses 6 through 9 is this reality that no deed is unseen by an all-seeing God. There is some comfort in that, isn't it, friend? There's fear in that if you're the one committing the injustice. But there is comfort for, for you and I who are afflicted by wickedness to know that God saw it all. He knew. He saw it from beginning to end. He saw it unfold before His eyes and one day He will deal with it. Even as we think about our own congregation, one of the ways that we guard against the kind of injustice and wicked leaders that we find in this particular text is through our robust congregationalism, right? So this is not a pastor-ruled church. 
right? This is a congregational church. This church just last Sunday made a number of decisions. They owned it. It was their decision to make, right? They're led by pastors, but ultimately the congregation is in authority. They hold the keys, if you will. While we follow those who have been set apart as pastor, we understand that the final and full authority rests in our own congregation. Friend, we ought then to regularly pray that God would raise up godly leaders among us. We, we should never just sort of assume that God's just going to, you know, they're going to grow on trees outside and we're going to go harvest them. No, no, no. God gifts His church with godly leaders. Consider even David's final words in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 23, verses 2 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. What does he say, David? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In other words, when we have godly leaders in our life, what happens? We are blessed. But when we have ungodly leaders, we ha- we're cursed. And so as, as Christians, we want to cultivate. And our, our prayer as pastors is that every pastor that shepherds this church would be such a godly leader as to be a blessing to those around them. When we face injustice, we must call out wickedness and we must cry out to God for justice. And finally... In verses 10 and 11, we see we must celebrate God's future judgment. Again, as we've said throughout, the psalmist naturally leads us to a place of hope and hopefulness, and particularly here in the enjoyment of a renewed and restored creation where righteousness reigns. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. David concludes with this really stark picture, isn't it? Of a God who pours out His wrath on the wicked and bathes His blood in, bathes His feet rather in their blood. My goodness gracious. It's an appalling picture but one that is clear about our God. That our God will deal with wickedness. And we find here the righteous, notice the verb, will rejoice. Well, what will we rejoice in? Will we rejoice when we see the vengeance? Notice that David doesn't say that we will rejoice when we get vengeance, when we get revenge, when we get payback. No, friend, do you understand all of our vengeance, all of our revenge, all the ways that we want to pay back somebody, doesn't it tend to be more than what we were afflicted? We tend to heap greater upon those who inflict upon us than what they deserve. But what we understand from this text is that the wicked get exactly what they deserve. This is what it means that God is just. That his judgments are always right. That his sentence is exactly the punishment that the wicked deserve. Finally, there in verse 11, the word mankind is used. And this is, again, generically used. 
not to refer to the righteous or to the congregation, but to the mass of humanity when they finally come to the place. It is, if you will, an inclusio that points back to verses 1 and 2. Those who did not think that there was a righteous judge, do you indeed decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Of course they don't. Oh, but there is one that does. Verse 11. His name is Elohim. His name is God. His name is Yahweh. And His judgments are always right. Friend, isn't it an encouragement to know that God will deal with injustice? That even as we face ongoing injustice in the fall, that one day this world will end. One day there will be an end to every injustice that we face. As we experience them, we trust the words of our Savior. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Or as we heard earlier in Romans 12, brothers, never avenge yourself, but leave the vengeance to the Lord. For he says, I will seek vengeance. God's punishment will be greater than anything you and I can do. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that through our judicial system here in our own country, we don't seek justice, we do seek justice. We understand that even in our world, in, in our systems of justice here, under God's providence and government and the, the, the authority that He's given to government to rule, it's still imperfect. Rather, we rest in a future judgment. And we celebrate that one day God will make all things right. Even when we're able to make things right ourselves, He Himself will make all things right. In a summer day in August of 1932, there was a young musician who was struggling tremendously. He faced a number of issues in his own life. He would often be caught into anxiety and unable to compose music. He would go by Georgia Tom because he was of African-American descent. He often would write under the pen name in order to have a greater hearing. His actual name was Thomas Dorsey. He and his wife Nellie lived there in Chicago, originally from Atlanta. And in August of that summer, they expected a newborn child. And unfortunately, through a series of events, both his wife and his child died at birth. Unable to write music for a number of years, he found himself sitting in front of his piano where he began to write the songs and these lyrics, Precious Lord, take my hand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm worn. Lead me to the light. Take my hand, O Lord. And lead me home. You see, when we face injustice, as Christians, the only thing that we can do 
is to cry out to God and to celebrate the future that He has for us. That God will make all things right. This is, friend, your only hope in a hopeless world. Perhaps you're the one who's inflicted wickedness. Perhaps you understand yourself to rightly deserve God's good wrath. My friend, remember what we spoke of earlier? That that innocent one died the death of those who deserve death? Well, by faith, if you believe upon this, this Christ who died, then you too can be free. You too can know that though you deserve eternal death because of your sin, that you can live with Him forever. This is what Luther once wrote, the enemies of God plot and breathe out dreadful things. But like a mighty flame where there is no more fuel left to feed it, their fury ends in nothing. Friend, entrust yourself to this truth that God will make all things right. When faced with injustice, may we join the people of God by calling it out. By saying that's not right. By calling out to God. By crying out in prayer, Lord, deliver us from this iniquity and rest. Friend, patience is the normative posture of the righteous. What are we patiently awaiting? The final judgment where God will right every wrong and expose every evil. O ye righteous, lift up your head. Give thanks at the remembrance of God's holiness, mercy, and providence. Your redemption draweth nigh. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The more you are robbed, robed rather, by affliction here, the brighter you will shine hereafter. Friend, never be afraid of your affliction, but entrust yourself to a good and gracious God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today, we pray, that we would know you better and more intimately through our affliction. To know that you are our Father which art in heaven. That you have led us, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Though you walk us through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For Christ has died. And His death has paid our ransom. And we are in Christ and will be forevermore. For Your glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen.